Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello. Today, my guest is Phil Harvey, co-author with Lisa Conyers of Welfare for the Rich, How Your Tax Dollars End Up in Millionaires' Pockets and What You Can Do About It, published in 2020. Welcome, Phil. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, well, congratulations on the book. It's got a lot of uh, advanced praise, and it's, it's very interesting the uh, all the sort of examples and research uh, that you've put together here. I I saw you had a, uh, a well, it's a blog post I saw it online, but it may have been in print since two thousand uh, twenty seventeen, where you were talking about researching this book. Did it actually take that long to to do the research? Well, I have found uh, that writing a book, uh, even with a co-author who's done a great deal of the work on it, um, takes a long time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not very good at deadlines and doing things quickly, as it turns out. Uh, so I would say, yes, it's been three years in the making. The book is actually not due out until August 5, but it's a pleasure to be discussing it now. Uh, since uh, the book is finished and uh, uh, we're just putting the, the finishing touches on the cover and a few things like that. But uh, it, it will be available very soon. Okay, great, great. Well, c- why don't we start off with the concept of welfare for the rich? Uh, so what you mean by it and why it's important? Well, the idea that the government at federal, state, and even local level, uh, should take taxpayer money from ordinary workers and middle-class taxpayers uh, and turn it over uh, in the form of subsidies, cash payments, uh, various breaks, uh, monetary breaks of various kinds, to wealthy corporations and individuals is an idea that I don't think anybody really supports. Uh, uh, the idea that you take from those who have less and give to those who have more is is simply nonsensical. Uh, but that is going on, in fact, all of the time now, uh, a result of very effective lobbying in many cases uh, by uh, large corporations and by uh, uh, individual interests. Um, just... Uh, I mean, our our feeling is that people on both sides of the aisle, and this is pretty much a bipartisan uh, issue, it seems to me, um, uh, Robin Hood in reverse, if you will, uh, uh, taking taxpayer money and turning it over to millionaires and billionaires 
Uh, indeed, uh, in the case of agricultural payments, uh, there are many, many examples of uh, taxpayer payments under the Farm Bill uh, being made to billionaires, um, really rich people, um, who happen to own a few acres of farmland. Uh, many of them don't farm. They don't live on their farms. Um, my, my favorite story in the uh, uh, farming uh, payments ripoff is the Disney ploy. Uh, the Disney Corporation gets enormous subsidies in both Florida and Southern California, as you might expect. But mm -hmm. uh, they're also getting some agricultural money because they put a few cows out to pasture on a piece of their property in Florida. So they're in, if, uh, as far as the government subsidy machine is concerned, uh, they're in the farming business. So they soak up some of that money as well. And of course, Disney is, as you know, uh, is a yeah. very, very wealthy corporation. Yeah, and um, I know uh, music stars like Bruce. I think uh, Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi and uh, and uh, you know uh, very wealthy individuals do stuff like that all the time as well, don't they? Sure, and there of course are people in the business of helping other people do that. I mean, there's there are several lawyers. One who's who's gotten quite wealthy in the process who form uh, agricultural partnerships of various kinds. Uh, agricultural payments uh, are normally limited uh, to people whose income is $900,000 a year or less, uh, not exactly penury. Um, uh, but uh, uh, if family members, uh, one's spouse, one's brother-in-law, one's cousin, and a few others, uh, can get together in a partnership, uh, their their uh, income limitations don't stop uh, payments of many, many, many millions of dollars um, um, going to the partnership, uh, which of course gives all of those people opportunity to, to participate in the largesse. It's, it's simply unexcusable. Uh, well, was there anything that sort of drove you uh, to write the book? Is there a story behind, you know, something that made you say, listen, I, I've just got to document this, uh, you know? Well, there were several things. One is um, in 2016, uh, Lisa and I wrote a book uh, called uh, The Human Cost of Welfare. We examined the entire welfare program. That is the program that, that really is designed for low-income people, a means-tested program that includes things like food stamps uh, and uh, the earned income tax credit and a number of others. Um, and in the process of researching and writing that book, uh, we were very distressed to learn that uh, in combination, our welfare programs are really failing the people they need to help. Uh, in the sense that they are not doing anything to get uh, people on uh, welfare into work. Uh, we talked to one fellow uh, who was very eloquent on the subject. He said, I go to the welfare office to get my uh, food stamp cards updated, and all the posters on the wall are about other welfare programs. He said, they should post jobs. What we want is <laughs> jobs. We want to work. 
and and get off of welfare. But the welfare system is designed uh, to perpetuate itself and to expand, and it is very very poor at um, uh, getting people back to work, uh, so that they won't. Uh, need the welfare any longer, and so that they can hold their heads up and and work and live with some dignity and self-respect. It's just very, very bad at that, and uh, the rules tend to make it uh, awkward and difficult uh, to get off uh, the welfare programs and into work because uh, the the way the numbers fall out, that sometimes means, in fact, it often means taking a cut in income uh, so we were very uh, uh, distressed to uh, uh, learn the details uh, of the existing welfare program and in the process said, well, why uh, in the face of this is so much, not it's not called welfare, of course, uh, but uh, subsidies and payments being made to wealthy people and wealthy corporations uh, uh, that could be used to provide jobs. The the one um, welfare-oriented program uh, that uh, does work reasonably well is the earned income tax credit, which rewards people for work, uh, makes uh, working uh, at a at a somewhat it tops up basically tops up people's earned income, um, and uh, that could be greatly expanded in our view. Uh, especially if we stop the hundreds, literally hundreds of billions of dollars being paid every year to uh, parties that do not need and do not deserve uh, to, to get those payments. Yeah, this is a uh, an interesting thing I want to explore with you, which is basically um, your, your background. Uh, because a lot of people writing on this, especially from an academic perspective, and a lot of our audience is, you know, um, grad students and uh, professors, and they usually come at it from a left-wing perspective. And and you know, in the media, um, you know, you have people like Robert Reich, you have uh, Anand Giridharadas, who's been talking about the billionaire class, and and you you have that um, side, which I think people are pretty well familiar with that's the kind of dominant discourse and then you have the kind of uh i suppose the the libertarian the fox news the, the right wing side with uh you know like you know, steve bannon and sarah palin before talking about crony capitalism and you had the tea party and and to a large extent the the trump movement um is uh you know has been tied into that although in practice it's it's been very uh murky uh your ideological uh perspective where is that and and i'd like you to bring in some of your personal history you know your your business your philanthropy because i i find that very interesting because your personal history sort of cuts across ideological lines in a lot of ways i think well i think that i think that is correct um give you a very quick summary. I, as a young man, I uh, I did five years with the relief organization CARE in India uh, back in the 60s. From there, uh, and in connection with that job, I got into the family planning business, uh, convinced that 
the most useful thing we could do for people uh, in developing countries uh, was to provide uh, easy and convenient access to contraceptives and contraceptive services. Uh, so I uh, founded an organization called EKT International, which uh, today uh, uh, is reaching something like 46 million couples in 25 or 30 countries, um, led by a really superb guy named Chris Purdy. Uh, so that uh, that is ongoing. More relevant to the book uh, is the DKT Liberty Project. I've dumped around on some of these things over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that project is focused on the United States and it's focused on civil liberties. Um, we um, have been very active, for example, in the war on drugs because, in my opinion, the war on drugs has been the worst thing to happen to civil liberties and civil rights in this country since the days of Joseph McCarthy. Uh, uh, devastating impact. Uh, particularly on minorities, um, uh, but also on everyone who gets caught up uh, in the war on drugs. So we've done a good deal of work in that area. Uh, we have worked on the issues of civil asset forfeiture. It's a very strange and inexcusable arrangement in American law that allows the police to take property from people on the mere suspicion that it may have been involved in something illegal. Uh, and they often keep the property, uh, even if they never indict or, or even accuse uh, the owning a party of having done anything illegal or even wrong. Uh, so we have uh, done some work in that area to help get their property back when it's been uh, inappropriately seized. Um, so, so in a lot of ways, I mean, you, you have this sort of sense of justice and, and injustice, but, but you're not coming from the, the sort of normal, expected sort of left-wing um, uh, discourse uh, on, on that topic. Am I right? Yes, I'm a libertarian, uh, and basically I think the libertarian uh, principles have it right, that is to say. Government should stay out of our bedrooms, and there we agree with uh, with uh, the liberals. Uh, and the government should also stay out of our boardrooms, and there we tend to agree uh, with the conservatives. That is, uh, the role of the federal government should be defined and limited and transparent, uh, while uh, recognizing, of course, that governments have certain functions that they must undertake uh, and maintain. Um, but in today's world, loaded with regulations and rules and requirements and paperwork, uh, a great deal of which slows down economic development, uh, and the kinds of policies that go into welfare for the rich, uh, subsidizing coal, for example. Now, there's a really smart move. Uh, we're trying to get away from uh, loading up the atmosphere with carbon and, uh, and federal government, uh, partly at Trump's urging, but it had been going on before Trump, uh, is turning over uh, millions of dollars to try to keep coal plants working uh, when we'd all be better off 
at least switching to natural gas, which is now cheaper, uh, that process is is ongoing, and that's a good thing. Uh, but the the uh, retrograde uh, tendencies of the federal government, which has a hard time not going on doing things that it's been doing, even if they're very um, um, it tends to uh, keep those kinds of things going. Yeah, yeah. But now, you know, what would be, let's say, the coal industry, for example, that that you gave the example, um, the specific example for, you know, what what are the arguments in favor of welfare for the rich uh, in in that case? Well, in that case, um, the arguments, particularly as put forward by Trump, uh, are jobs. There are a lot mm-hmm. of of people, mostly men, uh, who have worked traditionally in coal mines. Uh, it has been uh, generally well, well-paid work, but it is also uh, very dangerous work, or it can be dangerous. Anyway, uh, the justification is normally the fact that uh, uh, we need the jobs and we need the energy, um, but uh, energy sources now are much more diversified, don't really need, and are not, in fact, uh, using a great deal of energy from coal. Well, it's still significant. Um, And it's very significant in China and India, uh, and is therefore a um, climate change contributor, uh, Mm -hmm. especially in in those countries. Um, Um... but that's that's the basic rationale. Um, the jobs uh, are yeah. So, so would you you'd concede that there are that there is some rationale for it, but uh, but what that is sort of gotten out of hand. It's being abused. What what would you um, what what would your counter be then to that argument, which sounds reasonable? Well, my counter to it is. Is that the government should stop subsidizing all energy? There is no, I mean, the creation of energy is a very profitable business. Uh, our energy companies, our oil firms, oil companies, natural gas companies, uh, and so on, uh, are among the most profitable uh, companies in the American economy. They do not need to be subsidized, they should not be subsidized. Uh, subsidization uh, distorts the market. It it interferes with honest competition. Uh, it does not produce more of anything, generally speaking, except in the very short run. Uh, no more subsidies uh, in the energy business. And I would go further than that and say no more sub- subsidies in agriculture, which tends to be uh, way oversubsidized as well, um, uh, particularly, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for parties who are not even in the farming business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my overall and the overall uh, tenor of the book is to kill these bad subsidies uh, quick. Um, this will not cost anything. Indeed, it will be a net revenue gainer for the government and for the, the taxpayer. And it's it's one of the few things that we can do that doesn't cost anything that's going to make uh, um, 
inequality, for example, in commonwealth inequality better uh, simply by stopping the subsidization of wealthy parties. Well, let, like let's, a, get in, yeah, let, let's get into some of the, the details, which really makes up the, the bulk of your book, because I think a, a lot of times when um, you, you get into the uh, sort of abstract arguments on, on, on one side or the other, uh, you know, it's, 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 it seems, you know, uh, reasonable. But when you get to some of the examples that you, that you dig up here, it's, it's quite amazing and absurd when you see what actually goes on with this stuff. I mean, you, you, you talk about farmers and tariffs and stadiums and movies, entertainment, zoning, regulations, big tech, a, a, a lot of different areas. Now, are there any, you know, instead of, I mean, we obviously want people to, to buy a book to, to read it, but would you say that there are any examples in the book that you uncovered that even for you was like totally surprising and shocking? Well, the, the one uh, uh, small matter I mentioned, which is Disney putting a few cows on a stretch of their own property in order to collect agricultural system. <laughs> Uh, subsidies, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I I was both shocked and amused by. Um, the sugar program is probably one of the most egregious examples because uh, the, the sugar program that subsidizes uh, sugar farmers in the United States, sugar growers uh, in the United States, it is has been attacked over and over and over again by reporters and book writers and filmmakers, and yet it goes on and on and on. Basically, there's a series of uh, guarantee price guarantees by the government, limits, uh, strict limits on any short sugar that can be imported from another country, uh, and uh, uh, quotas for those few countries that we do allow to send sugar in. And the result is that sugar in the United States costs double uh, what it costs uh, anywhere else in in an open market in the world. This is inexcusable. Uh, The result is that uh, sugar barons like uh, Pepe Fanjul and and, uh, his brother in Florida are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars every year they are uh, sugar cane sugar growers in Florida, uh, and and without any justification. The thing that makes the sugar program even worse uh, is that you don't have to have enough of an income even to pay income taxes uh, to be uh, uh, paying for it. Everybody who buys commercial food. Uh, whether it's pies or uh, or bread or ketchup, anything that contains sugar, is paying more for it than they should be, uh, and in effect is putting their their extra pennies uh, on those food products into the bondholders' pockets every year. It's it's utterly unjustifiable on legal, moral, ethical grounds, uh, and yet it goes on. And uh, the the number of attempts that have been made in Congress uh, to correct this have all failed as the sugar lobbies are very, very good at lobbying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, about how much, um, do you you have an idea about how much actually goes, um, uh, 
to the sugar um, industry as a, res- a result of the lobbying? Uh, I, I don't have a figure off the top of my head, but it's in the yeah. tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, it, it's it's big business. Really? Uh, so that big? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And I, I mean, you, there are some, um, you know, individuals you, you have mentioned, uh, too, like uh, Elon Musk, for example, who's, you know, um, who's, you know, considered, you know, this um, sort of amazing visionary uh, entrepreneur, but, uh, but you, you know, you've, you've called them out for, you know, a long time, uh, you know, with Tesla and solar city and, and SpaceX, you know, receiving, um, you know, billions of dollars in, in public support. And, and a lot of these, you know, big tech people that, that, um, you know, project themselves as, as these models of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, when you look behind it, there's, um, you know, there's uh, something else. Do you, do you want to elaborate on some of that for us? Well, Musk is an interesting case. Uh, he's so effective at getting state governments in particular to compete for his business uh, that uh, states are kind of coming, coming to him uh, uh, and offering him tax breaks if he'll locate in their neighborhoods. Uh, and... Um, as a result, he has been able to raise hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars in subsidies for his various enterprises. Um, I don't question the fact that he's an enormously imaginative and successful entrepreneur, uh, but he should stop asking uh, uh, taxpayers around the country to subsidize his efforts. Uh, he's a multi-billionaire himself. He doesn't need uh, uh, support and payments from ordinary tax-paying citizens, uh, but he keeps getting it uh, over and over and over again. That should simply stop. Uh, The same uh, state governments that uh, subsidize his enterprises, uh, you mentioned films. Uh, Another interesting example, uh, a lot of uh, state governments uh, offer major tax breaks and other forms of incentives to film companies if they'll come make their films uh, in the state uh, at issue. Uh, that has gotten to be very expensive in terms of lost revenue to the states, and some of them are backing away from it. But uh, the idea that uh, uh, Montana's taxpayers should be paying uh, to film companies uh that they know nothing about and that don't really need their support uh, is just another example of a rather weird uh, way that money moves from taxpayers to wealthy parties. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it's one thing I find interesting about this is that uh, I, I suppose on both sides, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, the opposition to it comes from both uh, the right and the left, but um, but I think you know if you step back, it's um, the whole genesis of it uh, of this redistribution from the poor to the rich um, also is bipartisan um, from the right to the left. What what do you think? Um, do you, do you think? Uh, yeah, what, what do you think? That's a, a, 
a coincidence? Do you think it's a conspiracy? Do you think it's it's a it's a kind of racket inherent in all government, or uh, um, because you know there there are you know people you know who sort of defend the the act of lobbying itself and and um, you know as part of the democratic process, and I suppose that's kind of a a, a liberal uh, thing if I wanted pin it ideological somewhere. Then there's a kind of socialist who say, listen, we need economic diversification. We need revitalization or the market is irrational. So we need to provide incentives here or, or whatever that they have. And then I suppose there's just greedy lobbyists. I, I don't know if I would call that right-wing ideology, but certainly it's, you know, um, you know, business people just looking for their own interests and their own pockets in whatever way they can. You have this. Um, what do you, do you see any particular driving force among all these? You know, um, uh, all these actors um, trying to get people's tax dollars and government subsidies. Well, in terms of ideology, uh, the the difference uh, I think lies in in the distinction between the ideology and the actual on the ground. Uh, uh, cases. Um, in other words, I think both liberals and conservatives are opposed to crony capitalism in general, that is, uh, uh, capitalist-oriented uh, corporations who have connections in high places of getting favors from the government. Uh, as a general uh, process, most conservatives will say that's wrong. And virtually all liberals will say that's wrong. But when it comes to individual cases, then it depends on whose ox is bored. And right. uh, the very conservatives, and in some cases liberals, who oppose the idea will say, well, now, wait a minute, my Uncle Joe works in that field. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's they, they need their subsidies because without their subsidies, uh, some of them would go out of business. That's sometimes true, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, capitalism is a process of creative destruction, as one scholar has uh, cogently remarked, and some businesses do and have to go out of business. Uh, but the thought of losing jobs uh, gets everybody in uh, a, a great deal of heat and distress. So the the difference it comes down to individual cases, and the farmers will will tell you, as they told us when we were researching the book, that those agricultural subsidies are absolutely essential, uh, and they'll come up with a few cases where they are essential or or at least very useful, and ignore the ninety percent of the cases where uh, they're unneeded and unjustified. Um, but it's very, very easy to, to passionately defend a subsidy uh, if you are part of what is getting subsidized. Uh, and that, uh, that is one way that these uh, subsidy programs get perpetuated. That and the fact right. that uh, the agricultural interests, for example, are very, very well connected in Congress. Right, right. So, so in a way, um, they're able to use uh, stories and cases that that perhaps are deserving of. I mean, 
it's 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 weird to say, but it, you know, deserving of welfare for the rich, because I suppose ultimately it's supposed to go back to the community or the state or in jobs and ordinary people. I, I suppose it's that kind of circuitous route. Um, but so while they make that justification, then I guess people slip through. Um, unnoticed and and end up receiving ninety percent of of the the subsidies. It, it's it's that kind of process you see going on. Yes, and and you mentioned uh, the Dobbs rationale, and that one is is very very common, particularly uh, when a state government agrees um, uh, to provide a tax holiday, property tax holiday, typically maybe worth hundreds of millions of dollars to a company for locating there. And the company in return um, will normally promise to create 150 or 500 or a couple of thousand jobs. Um, And those jobs frequently simply don't materialize. Uh, Even when they do materialize, we find and, and published a number of cases in the book where the the cost per job was something like six hundred thousand dollars. In other words, the, uh, in terms of, of of an investment for job creation, these are yeah. terrible uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and unjustified. So that is a very common uh, pattern, um, and, yeah. and it it generally fails. Yeah, and and because it's it, it's quite amazing to think about it that. That, as you say, everybody's against it, right? I mean, theoretically, there's no justification for it morally, uh, and whether you're on the right, whether you're on the left, but yet it continues, uh, uh, you know, to grow. And and I, I suppose it's it's the way that they can sort of use, you know, the few deserving cases as justification for. You know what really turns out to be a kind of huge racket when you sort of uh, to to dig beneath the surface, um, and and I think and um, um, I mean your I, I don't your research would have started way before the coronavirus, of course, and um, but I think the the coronavirus bill sort of um, illustrates that. Because you know that that's been called you know the largest upward transfer of wealth uh, in history. I, I don't know the, the figures exactly, but I've heard critics um, talk about that. That that you know what was supposed to help ordinary people has ended up being these massive transfers um, to the wealthy. And do you have uh, any comments on that? Well, there there's a lot of truth in that, and it's uh, it's part of a long term pattern. The um, payroll protection uh, program, for example, which was originally a three hundred and sixty some billion dollar a part of the uh, COVID nineteen uh, relief package, uh, was designed specifically to help small businesses. They were defined as businesses with fewer than five hundred employees, uh, and some of that has actually gone to small businesses. I will concede that. Uh, but a great deal of it uh, has gone to chain uh, corporations of restaurants and hotels uh, that have thousands of employees um, because Congress 
uh, decided that they should be accepted. Uh, there are a large number of such recipients who don't need that money, uh, and indeed a few of them um, uh, have been so embarrassed about accepting uh, a government bailout money uh, that they have returned it, uh, which which indicates um, um, definitely a lack of need and uh, recipients being uh, uh, among the most wealthy. I mean, this this is not unexpected. Somehow, uh, the people with connections always end up doing better than the ordinary uh, um, hardware store or uh, a local restaurant. Um, and it's sad. It, it is quite sad, and it, it also will have backlash, I'm afraid, because if the COVID-19 relief package, which is huge, somewhere in the vicinity of $3 trillion now, uh, is seen as bailing out big business the way we did with banks in, in uh, 2008 uh, and letting the small guys go, as we did in 2008, so that is the small banks all suffered while the big banks raked it in. Uh, if this uh, uh, program is seen the same way as helping uh, the big hotel chains and restaurant chains and other uh, wealthy businesses and uh, leaving local businesses and small businesses high and dry, um, it will further solidify people's low opinion of the government. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and I mean one one important thing about your book too is that it's not just a, a litany of complaints and um, you know outrages and you you also really talk about solutions and about you know trying to you know fight this and fix this C could you elaborate on that for us please well it's tough um the first amendment to the constitution guarantees the right to lobby or we the people corporations anyone uh uh can um, appear before government and uh, make its claims. Um, therefore, lobbying uh, is, is here to stay. And not all of it is bad. I mean, there's no reason why people with a legitimate interest shouldn't uh, talk to their congressman uh, or senator um, uh, to, to correct wrongs that, that need to be corrected. Um, but to get at some of the things we have been talking about this morning, uh, one, I think, most productively uh, turns to the organizations uh, that are working on this, the organizations that work toward tax fairness uh, in the tax laws, the organizations that uh, uh, one called POGO stands for something I can't remember right now, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, watchdogs government expenditures to see that we're not paying $2,000 for toilet seats and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, working with and supporting those organizations, which we list in the last chapter of the book, with their um, um, contact uh, information, uh, I think is, is the best hope 
Uh, and so is community activism. I think that getting involved with groups in your own community and running as much of your lives in the community as you can, as opposed to waiting for Washington to say something this way or that way, is healthy on many, many levels. Um, and uh, it it um, takes on some of the things that human beings are best at, which is taking care of each other, people we know, people we interact with. Uh, that also is very helpful because it makes uh, the the lobbying effort by the big boys simply irrelevant or less relevant. So all of those things, I think, are helpful. Uh, but I'm not at all optimistic about altering um, the influence that uh, major groups and corporations, including some nonprofits, by the way, mm -hmm. um, uh, the AARP is a very, very active lobbyist, for example, um, on behalf of their members. In, in one respect, perfectly appropriate. Um, but uh, the extent of lobbying activity and the extent to which bad programs are maintained, again, usually on, on the uh, observation that ending them might cost jobs, um, I, I think is going to go on. I don't think we, we can do a great deal about it, although... Uh, like liberty in general, we have to keep trying. Yeah, you know, th this is interesting because um, you know there, the rise of of populism uh, throughout the world um, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, it, I think it's it's a fascinating and and very important phenomenon, and it's been across both the right and the left. I mean. Um, you know, so you had things like Occupy Wall Street, for example. I, I, you know, you're liber You personally, you know, identified yourself as a libertarian, and you know, it. So it doesn't necessarily put you on on the right, uh, although there would be some things um, that you would be sympathetic for, and you know. I suppose the Republican Party. I, I'm guessing, and and I don't know. Maybe the Democrat party as well like for instance what i'm interested what would be your opinion of let's say the occupy wall street movement when that happened when people were outraged at you know at the subsidies uh that the banks were getting while people were being put out of their homes and stuff what uh, you know that that is a type of of activism uh, is 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 that something that you think is if effective or that you have sympathy with um, i'm curious well, I'm certainly sympathetic with anybody who uh, wishes to express their views in groups or by themselves or any other way. I mean, Occupy Wall Street consisted of people who had every right within uh, the limits of um, not disrupting the movement of city life in New York, but uh, every right to make their views known, to protest and, and to march and to, to camp out to the extent they followed the the, the rules there. So I'm, <laughs> I'm completely supportive, uh, right. uh, of free speech issues, uh, of, of virtually any kind, as long as they don't lead to or perpetrate violence. Um, yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, one of the great things about this country and one of the things that's going to get us through crises like the one we're in now 
uh, is a firm belief in the right of people to protest, firm belief in free speech, including speech we detest, uh, a crucial component of any free country, uh, and uh, uh, that that right should not be uh, abrogated or trimmed in any way. And I think that uh, there have been a few cases during the crisis uh, of uh, state governments trying to curtail uh, protesters uh, who are protesting uh, the extent of the lockdowns. Uh, they mm-hmm. should let them go. They should let them protest um, as long as they're not endangering other people in the process. That yeah. is sacrosanct as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and it's interesting because, I mean, a, a lot of the Occupy Wall Street people, uh, their solutions, I would imagine, you would be opposed to because, you know, a lot of communists and, you know, yeah, outright communists and socialists and, and stuff there, which obviously would be against your libertarian principles. Uh, but, um, but you know, the, the Tea Party, I think, was motivated by a lot of the same kind of concerns, but expressed very differently and by a very different political demographic. But, you know, but you had, you know, Occupy on the one hand, you had the Tea Party on, on the other. I, I think there was a lot of common ground, but practically they seemed poles apart. Uh, I, 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 is there a way that, that you see that um, this should be bridged or could be bridged? Um, I, I'd like to hear your views on that because, you know, the, the discontent is, as you say, uh, you know, across the political spectrum. But, you know, but people remain divided in a lot of ways in their opposition to it. Well, um, we're never going to get everybody happy. Yeah. And I, I see nothing wrong with that. I mean, uh, right. democracy is a country with uh, different groups, with different priorities. Uh, and I, I don't see any virtue in trying to get everybody together to sing on the same page. Uh, let us have, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Let us have the Tea Party. They, they have not, uh, disrupted, uh, political life in this country, um, uh, irredeemably in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at least that's my optimistic view at this point. Uh, so disagreement is fine. Um, the only thing that we should not allow in connection with this agreement is violence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as we bring the uh, interview to a close here, what what message would you like to leave your readers with after you know they they get through your book? Well, um, certainly uh, pay attention to the suggestions and recommendations in the last chapter. Uh, and talk it up. I mean, there is so much injustice involved in taking your money and mine and giving it to people who don't need it and don't deserve it uh, and are a hundred times wealthier than you and I are. Um, uh, talk it up. Um, give it some thought. And again, as I said, contact if you if you are so inclined some of the organizations that are working on these issues in Washington. 
Great, great. Um, I I know you are a you know very active and and busy person. Uh, are there any other projects that you're working on right now? Uh, the, the projects in the DKT Liberty Project, which is uh, which has a, a reactive website, are ongoing, and I will continue with that. And I continue to support uh, the International Family Planning Group, uh, DKT International. Okay, great, great. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been very informative and, and enjoyable. And I encourage all our listeners uh, to get your book. It's coming out in August, you said? August 5, yes. August 5th, right. Welfare for the Rich, How Your Tax Dollars End Up in Millionaires' Pockets and What You Can Do About It. It's Phil Harvey, one of the co-authors. The other is Lisa Conyers. And uh, so I really look forward to it and I hope you have uh, great success with it. Thanks. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, independent thought and freedom and subscribe to my youtube channel also if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com thanks and see you next week